Welcome to the Here and Now Motherhood podcast. Here and Now Motherhood is a nonprofit designed to support moms in their transition into motherhood. I'm your host, Nicole Hunt. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Here and Now Motherhood podcast. We have a special guest with us today. Um, we're going to be talking about yoga, a little bit about feminism, and about matrescence or the transition into motherhood, of course. Um, so, Kelly, would you mind introducing yourself? Sure. My name is Kelly Bryant. I'm the creator and founder of Kelly Bryant Wellness. I'm a yoga teacher as well as a personal trainer, and I help women of kind of all stages of motherhood to regain a sense of control and autonomy over their body, as well as reclaim their identity as a mother, but also as so much more than just a mother. Awesome. Thank you. We're happy to have you on the show today. I'm so excited to be here. Um, So let's start a little bit about your personal story before we get to what you do professionally. Um, And let's start way back before you ever started on your motherhood journey. So what was your perception of motherhood before you ever started becoming a mother? Yeah, I always tell people I think it's kind of funny because my perception of motherhood was that it's really unpleasant and hard and it wasn't really like sure that it was something I necessarily wanted to do. Um, just because that was sort of the cultural message that I saw. Uh, of course that's most women, I think, uh, see the other side of it, right. Which is that like being a mother is magical. It's amazing. It's all, you know, rainbows and, and, butterflies and unicorns. And so I came into motherhood with this very different perception of like being prepared to hate everything. And then of course I'm like daily, I'm like delighted. I'm like, this is fun. And like, this is fun some of the time ever at all. And other people of course have the opposite experience of like, oh wait, this kind of sucks like 50% of the time because just all of life is 50% good and 50% bad. I think that's so true that most um, mothers come into motherhood expecting it to be rainbows and butterflies and then find out that they don't like all of it. But it's interesting that you came from the other, like in in the reverse order. (laughs) Yeah. And I think that part of that is just like, if we want to get into like the yoga and the woo-woo, like I am, uh, I'm Ayurvedically speaking for any Ayurveda people, like I'm Pitta Kapha. I'm very fire dominant. I have like a much more yang versus yin energy. I have a much more like male, less so now. Being a mom has softened me a little, I think. But like, I just have like a very high achieving, very like intense energy. And so that just doesn't like, I didn't identify with the image of motherhood that I saw growing up. Mm-hmm. And I love that there's like a much broader cultural narrative of like what it means to be a mom now. Um, but yeah, that was, that was all like kind of new to me as I was, you know, becoming a mom and like seeing like, okay, can I do this without like baking cookies every day? Like, is there a way that I can identify as being a mom without feeling like I'm abandoning myself? Yeah, I, th- I think that's the really important piece is how can I be a mom without abandoning myself? 
Mm -hmm. And that's a big thing that I, like, that's my, my postpartum program is called reclaim for that exact reason that it's about, um, being more than, you know, not just identifying as a mom. And also the name of my, it just came out. The name of my podcast is not your mama, because it's about like, you are not just a mom and like, you're not everybody's mom just because you're one little human's mom. I love that. So kind of like channeling your caring into a certain person rather than trying to do it for everybody. Is that kind of what you're saying? Yeah, totally. And I mean, people talk about this in the workplace all the time, right? That like in our workplaces, women tend to do more of the emotional caring. In our marriages and our partnerships, women tend to do more of the like emotional, you know, kind of like structural work of maintaining the family. And that doesn't, it doesn't necessarily have to go hand in hand with being a parent. Totally. Well, so what led you to want to become a mother then? (laughs) Um, well, uh, (laughs) I like to joke that I think the joking is a protective mechanism. I'm not really sure for what, but I like to joke that it's like, because I'm amazing. And so obviously the world needed more of me and that's the only way to make more awesome people like me. Um, I think of course, like there is to some extent, you know, as a human species, there's a biological drive to procreate. Um, I have an amazing, amazing partner. And so, you know, knowing that he was going to be such a great dad, like, I think I wanted, do we have patrescence as a word? Like I wanted to witness. There needs to be, there's not, there's not a lot of research on it yet, but uh, the lady who coined matrescence Mm -hmm. also mentioned patrescence. So yeah. Yeah. I wanted to like, be a part of that transition for him as well. Um, And of course, like, I think I I always tell it as like, to me, the idea of becoming a mother, you know, for the longest time, it was like, I can't even fathom being pregnant, let alone giving birth, let alone having a newborn, let alone. And so once I started to have this, like, okay, I can like, I can wrap my head around being pregnant. And then it became like, okay, I actually am kind of interested in this birth thing. And once those two happened, I was like, okay, clearly I'll get my sea legs as I go. Like, I don't have to be all in for having a toddler right now. I'll figure that part out when I get there, Mm -hmm. which I have a toddler now and I'm figuring it out. And again, I'm daily surprised that like, I think she's like a really cool kid. Yeah, I... I think, thanks for sharing that because I think, um, like, I like that, I mean, kind of what I hear is like, I don't really know why I had kids, Uh right? You know? And I think that's super honest. And I, um, I, when I had some friends, um, a few years ago, um, that were considering when was the right time to have kids. And I was like, guys, there's really only one reason. It's because you want to, Uh like, that's it. You know, like that's the most legitimate reason. If there, there's other reasons, then I'm not sure they're so great. You know, like maybe I'll fit into this friend click better if I have a kid. Like that's not a good idea. Um, yeah. And I will say on the on the friend click side of it, it is helpful to feel like as part of this transition into matrescence and thinking about having kids, it's helpful to think ahead to like, what is my life going to look like on the other side of this, right? That you know, a lot of people, um, you know, I just had a client who struggled with infertility telling me that like, you know, she felt like while she was on her infertility journey that, you know, her friends didn't get it 
And now that she has a kid, her infertility friends don't get it. Like, it's Mm -hmm. just, we have to, so I say all that to say, like, my best friend and I agreed together, like, we were both very much on the fence. Like, do you want to do this? I don't know. Like, and we agreed that we would do it together. And, you know, it's, we're, I think, very fortunate that we happened to be willing to make that decision and have partners who were willing to make that decision at the same time. But it is, I think, valuable to think ahead to like, okay, this is going to shake my identity. I'm not going to be the same person in social situations that I was. And even going from one kid to two is like the same, I, this same friend just had her second. And I was telling her that exactly like, your identity changes when you have the second one. Hmm. And I think another thing that's useful to think about is like when you do, like if you have friends who are either going to have children or already have kids and like kind of planning on them being your friend at that point, that doesn't always work out Hmm. because like sometimes you're a different kind of mom than you expect it to be (laughs) or things work for you like different styles of whatever. And, you know, sometimes you can make that work, but sometimes it's like too deep in you and you're like, I can't, I can't be part of this group of people because I don't, does that make sense? Yeah, totally. A hundred percent. I think it's, (laughs) this is going to sound so funny, but like, I think in some ways, like the, you're really, you're close, close people in your parenting journey. It's a little bit like marriage where you have to be like, I am in, like, I'm all in no matter what and whatever differences we have, like, I'm willing to, to like, work through my own stuff to, like, still be a part of this relationship. And you're not going to do that with, like, six, quote unquote, best friends. Like, that's just not sustainable. But for us, like, our community is, like, we have grandparents on both sides who are very involved, fortunately. And we have like this person, you know, my best friend, like from high school and like, we've kind of like made this marriage, like pact of like, we're going to figure out how to be parents together in a community, but you don't make that commitment to everyone. You can't Mm -hmm. do that with all of your mom friends. Totally. It's like you said, it's not sustainable. And there's also like a level of commitment Mm -hmm. with that, you know, that you can't manage that with the. 20 people right and and you know it's like she knows like I always joke like I'm like my kid's a daycare kid like she eats food die like that's of course I would prefer that she didn't like but that's just the way it is and so like my friend knows that if her kid comes to my house like she's gonna eat crackers and like that's okay like and if she doesn't want that then she doesn't have to send her kid to my house like and I don't have to babysit her kid for free like that's the trade-off and Mm -hmm. And like both, I think both parties have to be okay with like, we're going to disagree about the, like the nuts and bolts of like exactly how to do this. And we're going to have boundaries of like, okay, this is what I, this is where I kind of put my line. And if we can't agree on that, then my kid's not going to spend time with you. Yeah. And I think the part of what you're saying, it's kind of just being an adult of being like, I don't agree with that. And that's okay. I can take what works and that's fine. You know, Mm -hmm. instead of having to like only be surrounded by clones of yourself. Right. And it's hard not to evangelize. And this is something I struggle with in my 
my work practice as well, because I'm working with prenatal and postpartum populations, I had a home birth, like I'm full on board with like the woo woo crunchy birth world. And the majority of my clients are not the majority of my clients are like, my OB told me that like doing yoga classes would help with my low back pain. So that's why I'm here. So, Mm -hmm. you know, in, in every capacity, I'm, (laughs) I'm getting a lot of practice, but we could all use more practice of like being okay with allowing people to be wherever they are in their beliefs and not even assuming that like, they're going to come to your side eventually. And you just have to give them space to do that. But just to be like, they might decide that for infinity, their beliefs are different from yours. And like, they're never going to agree with you. And that's fine. And also like, they have a lot of good reasons for their Mm -hmm. beliefs. Like they have a whole life that's led up to them that, you know, maybe if I had led the exact same life, I might have the same beliefs too, you know? A hundred percent. And so I think each person's beliefs are like 100% valid and I don't have to change them, you know? Mm-hmm. It just, just the same way that like none of us want to be changed either, right? Mm-hmm. Like I, yeah. I consider myself to be very open-minded. And so like typically if I see something, of course, again, because I work in this space, like if I see something in the birth and childcare space that like I disagree with, I tend to have a very like tell me more mindset, but I'm pretty good about saying like, okay, I'm not interested in being convinced of that. Like I I can learn about it. I can respect it. I can like want to hear someone else's experience and also like hold my boundary of like, but you're not going to convince me and I'm not here to be convinced. Totally. Totally. Well, let's talk a little bit about your pregnancy mm-hmm. with your daughter. So what was that like? Um, God, it feels like it was, <laughs> it feels so long ago now. Um, I had like a, I would say like a very typical healthy pregnancy of like, I had morning sickness. I felt like crap for 14 weeks. Then I felt pretty good. Um, you know, I, I was at the time I was a yoga instructor and a bar instructor So I was teaching a lot of classes. I think I was teaching like 10 classes a week. Um, And I was very active. Um, You know, my, my midwife, the first time I told her I was teaching 10 classes a week, she was like, what? And I was like, I'm not doing 10 classes a week. Like I'm telling them what to do, but that's still like very high energy, standing up, walking around, like, you know, pump, pumping up the energy. If it's a bar class, like, Um, so I was pretty active through my pregnancy. I actually worked up until my due date before my boss at the time was like, I need you to officially be on maternity leave because I wake up like in the middle of the night being like, Oh my God, no one's going to show up at the studio for class. (laughs) So, um, yeah. I mean, 10 classes a week is a lot. Yeah, it is. It is. uh, It is a lot. Um, it is my full-time job. So like, that's sort of the caveat that I give that I think a lot of Um, a lot of teachers, for example, if you're like running a yoga studio and also teaching 10 classes, that's a lie. If you're, you know, it, it's not, not very demanding. It just, for me, that's also what I'd been doing all along. Mm -hmm. And so that felt fine to me. Yeah. Um, which is very much to the point of like the mature, I would not recommend that for like the average pregnant person walking into my, you know, I wouldn't be like, yeah, you should totally like 
walk around at a fast pace and like kind of half yell for 10 hours a week. Like that sounds like a great idea. Um, I'm like, well, that yeah, it's worked for me because that's what I was doing. And also it was my job. I didn't really feel like I had a choice. Right. Um, one of the things that changes during matrescence is our status within the group. And some people start seeing that change during pregnancy. Mm -hmm. Did you see that during pregnancy or was it later for you? It's an interesting question. I mean, it was, I, I didn't show for a long time, you know, first pregnancy, super active. That's not surprising. Um, and even then, like if I was like sitting behind the desk at the studio, like people would not realize I, nine months, people would not realize I was pregnant until I like mm-hmm. stood up and turned to the side. So I feel like I got a lot less than that. I was, I actually consider it to be very fortunate that I got a lot less of the poking and prying and questions as well. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, there is that sense of like, I live in a, um, I live in an area with a lot of retired folks. So I was having like a lot of women in their sixties, um, you know, like wanting to like, you know, I don't know how else to say it other than like welcoming you into the group, Mm -hmm. like just like, Oh, you're one of us now. And like a lot of, this is how you're going to feel. And this is what you're, what it's going to look like for you. Um, which I did get a little bit of that. Um, but I also think because I live in an area where I don't have a lot of peers that I also didn't get that to some extent. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like it might've been a little bit different had you been around like other pregnant people or other moms, young moms. Right. And of course, now that I, I am a lot deeper into that community now. And so it's interesting to be on the other side of matrescence where I feel a little bit like people are looking to me as an authority figure. And I'm like, Oh, boo, I cannot tell you anything about what this is going to look like for you. Like I can tell you a lot of things about what it could look like for you, but it's, it is interesting to feel like I never really was part of a prenatal community. And then I just became like this expert in a prenatal community. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, so what was your birth like? I love birth stories. This is like one of my one of my favorite things is like when I have people come back to my postnatal classes and it's like, ah, how was your birth? Um, but I also like them because there is a lot of healing in the storytelling as well, just to hold space for people to be like, it wasn't great. But for me, I had I always say like my birth was the most empowering thing I've ever done. Um, I had a home birth. I actually, um, getting a little bit into the technical side of things. Like I had what I think was probably a lot of pelvic floor tightness because of the physical demand of what I was doing for my whole pregnancy and not getting, you know, not like having a lot of muscular tension in my body. Um, and, I was in the middle of my birth. I was having constant hip pain, really bad, not getting any breaks between contractions. And thank goodness, my chiropractor came and adjusted me in the middle of my birth. And that resolved all of the, all of the like significant pain that I was having. And like, ultimately just baby kind of like 
flew out of there. Um, and there's like video of me, like literally like pushing her out and then being like, that was not that bad. Wow. I've never heard someone have a chiropractor adjust them during a birth before. My husband and I have had this conversation that we're like, this should be standard care. And we're very lucky that the midwifery practice in our community is very tied in with the chiropractic practices who see mm-hmm. pregnant people. So it's, I don't want to say it's like common or routine, but they, they have certain red flags that if they see them and it's like reasonable to say, Hey, can, do you want us to call your chiropractor? They will. And it is, I mean, like, I was going to say life-changing and then I was going to second guess it. And no, I'm going to say life-changing. Like it really is life-changing to like, I know that there's a strong possibility my labor could have stalled, could have extended a really long time. Like I could have had an emergency transfer to the hospital in a C-section. Like that's not, that doesn't seem outside the realm of possibility for me. So to have a chiropractic adjustment that just like takes this situation from being really traumatic and makes it incredibly empowering is awesome. Yeah, that's incredible. I, Cause I've never heard somebody describe it the way you just did of like, well, that was easy. Yeah. Yeah. And that really, and of course like that, the, the baseline that I had, because I was having such, I was at like, I want to say like four or five centimeters, like not super far along into active labor. And just like looking at my husband, like I can't do this. Like this is too much pain. And I can't like, Mm -hmm. I can't breathe into this. I can't relax into this. It's just constant pain. And so of course, like some of that, like, Oh, that was really easy. was like, just from a baseline of like, I'm going to (laughs) die to then like, have it just like, just happen. And of course I also had a six and a half pound baby, which is like fair to mention. This wasn't like, you know, some nine pound baby. Um, but I did ultimately have like a very empowering birth. Um, you know, we, we did Bradley method. And so my husband was like super involved, like really participated. Um, so yeah, it was like an amazing experience. Yeah. That sounds amazing. So what was, um, what was your immediate postpartum experience like? I actually think I discovered, um, the birthful podcast with Adriana Lozada while I was pregnant. And she's a big proponent of making a postpartum plan. And so I felt like pretty, pretty prepared really to like my husband and I had talked a lot. And I think again, much like I underestimated how much I would like motherhood. I think I overestimated or I guess underestimated my capacity. I overestimated how difficult postpartum would be just because I did ultimately, like I didn't have significant tearing. I didn't have any surgical interventions, you know? So I did have a quote unquote, relatively easy birth. Um, so I think I kind of overestimated how hard it would be. So again, I was like very pleasantly surprised. I think that is not typical. I think it is much more typical to vastly underestimate how hard postpartum is going to be to not think ahead or prepare And of course, like, there's a lot to be said for my community here of like, we were being fed and we were being, you know, we were really being taken care of. Um, So of course I had the, like the mental and the emotional struggles of like, was this a mistake? This is hard. I don't know that I wanted to do this, but the physical part of it 
because I had so much physical support, it was a lot easier to work through that like postpartum kind of questioning. Was this a giant mistake? Mm-hmm. Um, so did you wind up doing some like fourth trimester planning ahead of time? Yeah, we, I mean, we like did a whole lot of cooking ahead of time. I think the big thing, and of course it also comes down to like communication where we were kind of saying like ahead of time, we said, Hey, let's do, let's do the nights like this. And we had that plan. And I think because we had a plan, it was easy to say, Hey, that plan's not working. Let's diverge from that plan and try this other thing instead. And I exclusively breastfed, like, and by breastfed, I mean, I exclusively fed at the breast for the first six weeks. So because I was a hundred percent on the hook for that, we made the decision that my husband should sleep through the night and then be like ready to take over at that, you know, four to 6 a.m. waking, whenever that was, and then let me sleep. And I think a lot of moms, I'm going to say moms, like presumably women, the, the birthing person, um, there's a lot of this like solidarity of like, we have to do everything together. Like if I'm going to be up in the middle of the night, my partner needs to be up in the middle of the night you know, I don't want this baby to be tied to, and of course there are many, many valid reasons to exclusively pump, but sometimes people use the reason of like, I don't want this baby to be tied to me. I don't want to be the only person who can feed them. So I'm going to pump and my partner is going to bottle feed. And like, if that's the, if that's the only option you have for a medical reason, a hundred percent do that. But like, I think, it's a lot harder because now you've got two adults that have to be up at every waking. So we did have a plan and we also were really open and communicating about like foregoing the plan and changing the plan and shifting to deal with the kid that we actually had. Yeah. And I think, um, along that vein, it's like the emotional impact of birth and early postpartum, might call for that like emotional reinforcement of having your partner awake with you. Yeah, a hundred percent. So like each birther is gonna mm-hmm. need something different and each birther, depending on, you know, each birth individually, it's probably gonna be different as well. So I'm glad you're able to find what worked with you and your partner and right. your baby. And I think that the I think what I'm what I'm trying to get at or to call out here is not that there's like a better way or a worse way, but that all of the ways are valid. And sometimes like to the point of feminism specifically is like, I see this as like a feminist thing of like people thinking, I shouldn't say it is a feminist thing, but it's portrayed as a feminist thing that like your part, you and your partner have to do exactly even amounts of work. And like, it's okay in early postpartum to say like, they physically cannot do all of the things that you can do. And so let them do a 50% of the work that isn't tending to the baby. So it's kind of like coming at it from an equitable perspective rather than 50-50. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's really helpful, especially like sometimes the birther wants to do more Mm -hmm. than the partner anyways. So it's like, it's okay to like just take whatever you need um, what works for you and your partner and do that. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And and that there's benefit in in saying like, okay, I need some solidarity of both of us being awake. And also there's benefit in saying like, okay, I'm going to be struggling emotionally. Maybe I need my emotional support person to be well rested, right? So just to like totally. or to say, hey, maybe my partner who lives in this house with this crying baby and me should not be my primary emotional support person (laughs) that Mm -hmm. like they have a specific kind of work that they are uniquely capable of. And maybe that's feeding you. Maybe that's taking care of your house or your pets or your other children, or like maybe that's just making money and working. Like, unfortunately the reality of our, our workplaces right now is that like there isn't necessarily parental leave for both partners a lot of the time or for either partner a lot of the time. Um, And so like both people in this parenting relationship can have important jobs that don't look like doing half of all of it. Totally. And um, yeah, I think that was very well said because it's going to be different for each family, Mm -hmm. different for so many different reasons. And I think that that's one of the reasons why – postpartum doulas are a really smart idea because Mm -hmm. you cannot rely on your partner for everything. And walking into a postpartum period, expecting that it's going to be really disappointing Mm -hmm. because they're in a transition too. Like we mentioned, patrescence of like them becoming whatever, you know, maybe it's matrescence for them if it's a same sex couple. Um, But like, that was one thing like in my in my birth where I assumed that like sir like my husband or my mom would be supporting me. I'm like, whoa, this is kind of for them too. They're experiencing this too. I'm like, that's what a doula is. Okay, I get it now. <laughs> like, yeah, totally. And and I think that that's like a great place for the people who are listening who are maybe not in the thick of this transition themselves. There's a lot of things that we can do that that are not baby related, right? Everybody wants to come in when a new baby is born and say like, oh, let me hold the baby so you can take a nap. And for a lot of parents, like that is not going to feel nurturing, right? That actually, like that separation can be very tense. And so maybe it's like saying, hey, I'm not super close to this family. I'm not a part of this emotional shift. Maybe I can take their kid. Like that's my, my friend who just had her baby. Like I'm taking her kid one morning a week because that's the most supportive thing I can do. It's not coming in and, and watching her newborn. Like that's not helpful. Mm-hmm. Right. Totally. Yeah. And I think sometimes it's those things that you may not expect to be helpful, but it is super, super helpful. And it's sometimes just practical stuff, mm-hmm. like doesn't need to be like over the moon things like watching someone's kid once a week is not that big of a deal. It's just very practical. Especially when you have kids yourself, it's like, what's another one? Like, right. Yeah. Um, well, as you progressed in your motherhood story and in postpartum, um, tell me more about what that was like for you as you kind of started moving away in time from the, from the birth. Yeah. So one of the things I was just reflecting on recently, um, that's just crazy is I went back to work teaching classes at five weeks and like anyone who has a five week old baby, like God bless you. 
I don't know what I was thinking, but I very much just had this feeling of like, I have to get back to work. I have to get back to it. And a lot of that was like the identity shift of like, I'm not just a mom. Like I'm going to keep working. This is a really important part of my identity. And, and in some ways I'm grateful to myself for like holding that line of being like, I am not just a mom, but I also wish I'd given myself space to say, I'm not just a mom. Like I still have all these other identities, but for right now, I need to sleep for right now. I need to like not be driving myself crazy with like pumping so that my, so that someone else can watch my kids so that I don't lose my, like, so that is like a big part of my journey has just been like the, and the reason that we were able to do that is because my parents are local. My mom took care of my daughter for us, like, you know, starting at a few hours a day or like maybe five or eight hours a week and moving up to taking her several days a week um, before we ultimately put her in daycare at like, I don't know, nine months or something. Um, so we had a lot of support in that facet of things. And also I think I didn't give myself enough support to just say, right now I just need to take a little time off. <laughs> like, um, so that's like been kind of a constant theme of my parenting journey is just figuring out how much do I work? How much time do I spend with my kid? How do I split that time in a way that feels nurturing on both sides? Yeah, I think there's a lot of emotions tied up with that for mm -hmm. most people. Is that what you find? Yeah, I mean, I think it's like you you identify as a breadwinner, right? Like I am a person who works. I am a person who creates value in the world in this context that isn't motherhood. And also I'm a parent and what are the important parts of being a parent to me? You know, I, I breastfed for 16 months and I never felt super emotionally invested in that. Like, it was like very much like, this is a practical decision. Breast milk is free. Uh, it's like healthy. It has immune benefits, like all of this other stuff that like, that never felt like a really emotionally charged decision for me. Um, but every parent is going to have their own, like, these are the parts of parenthood that are really important for my presence. And something that I'm still working on now is like my physical presence versus my mental and emotional presence. Right. Because like we all have these wonderful little six inch devices with a glowing screen on them that like pull us out of our presence constantly. And you know, this is the here and now motherhood podcast. So, um, that's, that's definitely been part of my journey is like, how do I be, you know, how do I be a business owner and also be present emotionally and mentally? Yeah. I think that's really, yeah. There's so many pulling factors in all those little decisions we make and it's challenging. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I mean, I, someone I'm in a, in a Facebook group that I'm in of um, other practitioners, there was someone who doesn't have kids who, you know, said something about like, you know, I can't even remember what she said. It was, it was very lovely and like well-intentioned what she said, but something along the lines of like, I can't imagine doing all of this while being a parent. 
Um, and I'm like, yes, but at the same time, you know, I did the, like, I worked at a tech startup in my twenties. Um, and I totally burned out on that without having kids. Like, so I Mm -hmm. think there's also this cultural assumption that like, Oh, it's all really hard because you have kids. And I don't really think that necessarily. I actually think it's a lot easier for me to maintain balance because I have a really good reason. Yeah, I totally agree. Like um, when my husband was in grad school and I was pregnant, his um, he was doing he worked in a lab and his PI was like talking to him about having kids because she had two young kids. And she was like um, she he was just kind of concerned about, you know, balancing work and family. And she was like, honestly, in some ways it's easier because I get a break from my kids at work. Mm -hmm. And also my kids motivate me at work. Mm -hmm. And then I get a break from work when I'm with my kids. So it's like, uh, she's like, it works really well for me. And you know, that doesn't work for every parent, but I don't know. Sometimes it just, they can benefit each other, like your work life and your parent life. Yeah, a hundred percent. Because I mean, the other thing I said to this, um, to this person who'd made that comment is I said, I think my work is so much more important because I have a little person with a vagina at home. Like I'm very Mm -hmm. focused on like her rights and her personhood and her embodiment, like, and creating a, a, a world that I want her to live in. So Mm -hmm. it really does give like my work much more purpose. And when I'm home, like I, I do recognize that like every hour I'm with her is an hour that I'm not working and creating value in the rest of the world. And so like, it really makes me like pay attention to like, what am I up to in this relationship with her? And am I parenting in a way that is in alignment with my values? Because, you know, it's like, because my parenting time is so much more concentrated. Like I don't have as much of it. Mm -hmm. And I feel like when I have a little bit less parenting time, I am, yeah, like you said, more intentional Mm -hmm. about it because I'm like less burnt out on it. Oh, 100%. (laughs) Like by the end of a weekend, like when I'm home with my daughter all weekend, I'm like, yo, do whatever you want. Like I really (laughs) don't care. And Whenever, when there's, I don't know, there's, it's kind of like, um, we have a podcast episode on it about kind of like the Demeter archetype of somebody like a mom who's like, kind of like the Pinterest mom, you know, like she's like made first day at home mom life, mm-hmm. you know, and I'm just, I'm took me a while to figure out, I'm like, I'm just not that person. It's okay. Yeah. And those moms who do that, I'm like, you are so cool. And I love you for it. I, I can't do that though. I'm yeah. not built for it. I mean, my, my we have two, two like close, um, kiddos in age to ours. One is my nephew and one is my best friend's daughter. And they both are like, how is it? Cause we have, um, I don't know if you know the tiny beans app, but it's just like one of those like private family only, um, photo album apps. Um, and they're like, how do you have all the time to like do these painting projects and like do these crafts and do this like music class and blah, blah, blah. I'm like, because I don't do this all the time. Like they're both stay at home parents and they're like, you know, they're like, your house seems so peaceful and so like whatever. And I'm like, well, cause I'm not taking pictures of her at daycare when someone else is caring for her eight hours a day. Like, Mm -hmm. 
and also yeah. of course like in case anyone needs a reminder that nobody's posting the photos when their kid is like covered in body butter because they like stole something out of your nightstand and like you know like that's that's my daughter's mm-hmm. thing is like going into my stuff and like covering herself with makeup and self-care products that's hilarious oh yeah and it's and like each any i'll just say it for any moms who are not working and listening to this that like it's okay to be whatever kind of mom you want to be uh-huh. it's totally fine and it's awesome so you don't have to be a working mom um so let's talk a little bit about um physical changes at this point postpartum for you uh, maybe not right now, but in the last two years, because you said your daughter is two years old, right? She just turned two. Okay. Um, so did you have any birth injuries or anything, um, or has it been a pretty smooth physical transition for you? I did not have any birth injuries per se. I had, um, when I was 16, I was in a car accident where I broke my collarbone. And so I've had like a lot of shoulder back issues forever. Um, I also like to say that like before I discovered yoga, I spent my entire life like curled up reading a book. So I have like lots of hip flexor issues. So those are both things like upper back and hip flexors like tend to get real messed up by pregnancy just because of the way that we carry like our posture during pregnancy. Um, So I had like those kind of like nagging, things but that's was not it was exacerbated by birth but it was not by any means created by pregnancy and birth and if anything to this theme of like (laughs) when something has to be prioritized it gets prioritized like because postpartum recovery is such a big part of what I teach I'm in much better condition now than I have been pretty much at any point in my life because mm-hmm. it's a priority. Like I, I'm like this, my body is my job. I test everything that I tell other people to do. I test on myself. Like I mm-hmm. make sure that, you know, I, that this makes sense, that I like the, the way that I'm teaching something and all of that. So like, I am, you know, of course, like had the here and there, like, well, I don't know, is my vagina ever going to go back to the way it used to be? Yes, guys, it can go back. <laughs> mm-hmm. Give it time. There are things you can do, but I didn't have like a lot of the stuff that I help my clients with is like urinary incontinence, pain with sex. Um, geez, I'm trying to think of some of the other things that I see a lot, low back pain. Um, and I didn't, I really didn't have a lot of those things because this is such a part of what I do in my daily practices. Mm-hmm. Totally. Um, how did your relationship with your partner change during all of this? Hmm. Someone, one of my clients was just telling me, I forget where she said it was like something that came up in a podcast she was listening to, but she was like, this analogy of like having a kid is like when you take, I like to say like your, your purse, like if you were to take your purse and just like shake it upside down, that's what having a kid is to your marriage or your relationship where it's like any loose stuff is going to come out. Mm-hmm. So it's like, if you have things that you haven't worked through, like that's going to come up. Mm-hmm. But I also think that it's made both my partner and I, like we're, we're both pretty fiery. Um, we're both very stubborn. 
we like things our way. We both want to have the last word. Like mm-hmm. <laughs> these are these are all things that are kind of difficult when there's like a, a toddler in the background who's like screaming that they want an orange. Um, so I think it's made us both a lot more careful in the way that we speak, but also in communicating the reasons that we're saying what we're saying. Mm-hmm. Where it's like, okay, kind of what we were saying earlier about this idea of like, nobody wants to be convinced to change their mind about something like that. We, you know, we're very careful about saying like, I'm not trying to convince you to see things my way. I just want you to know that the reason I said what I said is blah, 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 blah. And that takes a lot more time. It's not like I'm perfect. Like that takes a lot more time than just being like, did you pack her lunch? Mm Mm-hmm. So like, there's, of course, there's like the, the like 90% of the time that you're like, this is just functional speech and I'm maybe not being as kind as I should be. And I'm maybe not being as careful as I should be, but like that five or 10% of the time that you just like sit down and go like, Hey, I was out of line. I should have been more polite about that. I should have been more like thoughtful about, you know, or I didn't realize what was going on for you in that moment. Like you just, you, you apologize a lot more. <laughs> it's like, yeah. That, that to me has been the biggest shift in just our communication because we could get away with just like, you know, spouting things off and like saying whatever, because like, then you can walk away and like, you don't have to be on a team all day, every day. Like, and when you're parenting a kid together, it's like, you can't just like slam the door and walk out and like cool off for 30 minutes. It's like, and now I'm still going to be here putting on her socks and shoes. Like, even though I don't like what you just said to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I'm sure that a lot of other um, moms and families see very similar things happen with them. Yeah. And I think that, you know, the, the big part, of course, that people expect to shift and that often shifts in relationships is the, the intimacy part of it, like the, the connection And I actually think that my business has come between us much more than our kid because praise the Lord, she sleeps. So like we have generally from seven to seven every night alone. And now it's just, you know, my husband likes to joke. He's like, oh, are you joining another book club? Great. I didn't want to hang out with you anyway. It's fine. (laughs) (laughs) So for me, it's like much less the kid. It's much more the like, all of the other stuff um, mm-hmm. that that has shifted. But I think like, it's also just to validate people's experience, like very normal for you to feel like you've lost that like part of you that wants to be intimate and connected. Right. It's very common for moms to feel like super touched out and like, just not, not into like having more of that intimacy and a few things that I've found to be helpful. We made a list, like we made a commitment of like on weeknights, we're not going to watch TV. And we made a list of like other things that we can do together that are not watching TV. And I don't mean like a sexy time playbook. I mean, like we can watch board games, like we can like watch a Ted talk and then discuss it. We can like sit together and read on the couch, like just being intentional about spending time together in ways that aren't, that are still nurturing, that are still like refilling your cup 
right? Because we get this picture of like the only kind of date night you can have is the one where you get dressed up and you hire a babysitter and you go out to dinner and like that can be very like energetically draining. And so you can choose to do things together that are creating more energy. And that of course just depends on you and your partner. And also having the space to say like, okay, like one Saturday a month, like I need to be a hundred percent off duty or one, you know, Tuesday night a week, like your Tuesday night every week, you get to go do something outside the house. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think part of what I'm seeing a lot of my clients struggling with is like that part of it is just really hard in COVID. Mm -hmm. Yeah. COVID changes a lot of stuff about that. I think um, there's something else that I had just realized recently that um, I was reading up on identity formation, which is a huge thing during matrescence. Mm -hmm. And if you don't have a solid identity, you can't be intimate. And if you're scared of intimacy, then it's because your form you form your identity isn't solid. Uh-huh. And so, like, I think a lot of moms like their sex drive may be low, or they just don't want emotional intimacy with their partner because they're like, I don't even know what to show you. Yeah. I don't even know what is in here. Like, what's yeah. in my heart? I don't know what's there. So, like, why would I be intimate? I don't know what to tell you. You know. Yeah. So I think that's another thing. I think that contributes as well to emotional and physical intimacy postpartum. 100%. And I actually, like, I think what you're talking about, I often view through the lens of the nervous system, which one of the big things in the way that I practice is like, I believe that everything we do with our bodies, like the first part of the work is the nervous system part of it, that we can't change anything. We can't shift anything. If our nervous system is like overstressed, right? There's like healthy levels of stress and fight or flight and a like a balance of rest and digest and so often in motherhood and early motherhood in particular we're chronically overstressed and sex requires a certain amount of fight or flight like there is a certain amount of like upregulated nervous system that has to happen in order for intimacy to occur and like that's something that we have to play with of like, okay, you have to be able to like down regulate yourself to a place where it feels like, okay, like I'm, I'm neutral. I'm fine. Like I, you know, I'm not like about to pass out and fall asleep and I'm not about to like explode because I'm so stressed and overwhelmed. And if you can't get to that like neutral starting point, like it's very hard to pursue intimacy. And I also think it's worth noting, like there are both yin and yang, you know, upregulated and downregulated ways to connect intimately. Like in general, there's some amount of fight or flight or upregulated sympathetic nervous system activity in all sex, but it can be more downregulated, gentle, quiet. And that's also something to like talk about and explore with your partner that like, And if any of the parents need to hear this, like it is really good for your brain to orgasm. It is really healthy for you to orgasm. So like if for no other reason, even if you're like, I'm totally fried, I'm exhausted, I don't want to do this, I don't want to do this. Like if it helps you to think of it this way, it's like, this is just your multivitamin. 
This is just like, it's actually, you. I promise you, the hormonal blueprint of what will happen if you actually create that connection and intimacy will make you feel better. It's like a, like a, um, a vaccine. It like inoculates you against like stress for, you know, however many hours. And so like, it's worth putting the work in, even if it does feel like a lot of work, because there are physiological and emotional benefits. And then if you feel like, okay, now there's a good reason to do it, then you can explore like, okay, how do I step one, like detach from this motherhood identity? Like, is it, I have to go take a shower? Is it, I have to like, what do you need to do to like get out of mom land and like go into this place where you're not that identity? And then who the heck are you when you're not mom? Do you even know which like therapy (laughs) that like, that's like, this is not like, okay, I'm going to like take a shower. I'm going to wash the stress of the day away. And then I'm going to look in the mirror and be like, you look gorgeous. Like not what's going to happen. Um, So like, there's a lot of identity work, as you said, and like, also just feeling like, okay, I feel calm and I feel ready to play with this idea of like upregulating, downregulating, being intimate and being aggressive. Yeah. Thank you for that. It's interesting to think about the um, nervous system Mm -hmm. and how that plays into motherhood. Oh yeah, totally. Because motherhood is like all the extremes. It's like, you're either unconscious or you're like on fire. Mm-hmm. Totally. Um, so I know one thing that you focus on in your work is what our culture says about postpartum, uh, sorry, about pregnant bodies. Mm-hmm. Do you want to touch on that a little bit? Sure. So like, I think the big, the big cultural messages that we get are either you're, you're highly fragile right now. Like you're very breakable. You have to be really careful. You can't do any of the things that you're used to doing or the kind of like the reaction to that is you can do anything you could do before. You're incredibly strong, powerful, do whatever you want. And unfortunately, as with all things in life, the answer is in the middle. We can't do all of the things, or I shouldn't, I shouldn't say we can't, it's probably not in our best interest to do all of the things that we used to do. And we have to really think critically about like, what, what is our why? What is the outcome that we want to get out of, you know, of course I work specifically in the exercise space. That's like what we're talking about here, but um, you know, what, why am I working out? What is the outcome I want to get? And is this action in the best interest of that outcome. When I work with prenatal people, their goals generally fall into one of three categories. It's to not be in pain right now, right? So to prevent injury and issues during pregnancy, to have the easiest birth possible, and to have the easiest recovery possible. And that's going to mean a lot of slowing down, pulling back, not going, you know, not going ham at the gym and like pounding out pull-ups or something. And that's hard for women who identify as strong. Yeah, definitely. If that's a big piece of their who their identity, it's uh, it can be a little shake their ground a little bit if they have to stop some of those things. Yeah, and to the to the your point earlier about like 
some of matrescents being like coming into the, like being accepted in, in a new group, it can be really hard if you are in specifically in a fitness context where like there are a lot of other pregnant people and prenatal exercise is done a certain way. Right. So it's like, if you're like coming from CrossFit world where it's like, what is respected and what is expected is for you to keep up everything you were doing before. It's really hard in that identity shift to not just do what the group does. Mm -hmm. And same is true. You know, I see that culture a lot in like spin, for example, where it's like, this rock star is here spinning five days a week and look how fast she's going. Look how hard she's going. You know, it's like, it's really hard to not dig into that culture. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Um, and some, some like in the U.S., we definitely have this like fragile, mm-hmm. fearful. Yeah, right. So there's that side of it too, which is also not healthy. It, it's almost... Um, I've heard one researcher talk about it, that the the female body is, uh, she called it leaky and uh, what was the other term she used? Um, Basically, it was like frightful um, or terrible, which I'm like, yeah, that's how you, and the pregnant body is like the most, like the, like quintessential, like the most feminine you Mm -hmm, could be. mm -hmm. And like, so you like see that really like over the top of how we see a pregnant body. Right. In our a hundred percent. Because it's like, I mean, even just departing from the, from the standpoint of like the research, it's like female bodies are just like kind of messed up male bodies. It's like, right. they're like the other yeah. they're Yeah. But that's not even a thing, you know, but that's yeah, how so it's, it's like, you take this, this like male body, which is the standard. And then like, you give it these hips that are too wide and like these breasts, what the heck? And like, then you take that body into exactly what you're saying, like, and then you make it even more of all of those things. Mm-hmm. And it's like, why don't we look at it the other way where it's like, okay, the pregnant body, you know, of course it's like chicken and egg. Do we have pregnancies or do we have like, where does the cycle start? But it's like the pregnant body is the beginning. That's like where right. life begins. That's where humanity starts is with a pregnant body. So like, why are we not saying that's our standard? And then everything else is just a a deviation off of a pregnant female body. Right. Cause that's like the most human you could be is, mm-hmm. well, I mean, and that goes, comes into issues with infertility of me calling it the most human uh, from a biological perspective, like, like how they define something that's alive is that it can reproduce, which I think is one of the issues with infertility because you're like, am I really human? If I can't reproduce like, yes, of course you are. Yeah. It just, there's a lot of issues, you know, emotional problems with that come up with that. Um, so forgive me for this word. Yeah. That, and I, I think like there's this, I mean, you could almost, of course, it's just, it's just like a, a way of thinking about it, but like you, I don't know. I think of infertility as like a completely whole, perfect human body that is a hundred percent capable of reproduction that just has this, this other issue. Like, right. That yeah, it, yeah. It, you're just having, you're just like having a cold. It's like you have a perfect human body that does exactly what it's supposed to. And it's just got a bug that like, mm-hmm. it's one thing. It's not like if your phone, like, you know, every time they update the uh, iOS and your phone stops working, you're not like, now it's not a phone. You're like, no, there's something wrong with <laughs> totally. my phone. Totally. Yeah. I love that. Thank you. 
Um, and there's other cultures that will look at pregnancy as if it's an opportunity f- to heal the group, mm. which is not the way we see it in the U.S. And so they will treat a pregnant person completely different. So like, you know, somebody in the U.S. is going to see like like the traditional way to do it is, you know, you go to an OBGYN and they're going to make sure you don't die, which right. is good. Yes. Um, Pro but- not die. Exactly. And then another culture is going to see a pregnant person as an opportunity for the group to connect more. And they're going to treat pregnancy and postpartum so differently because of that. So it's just interesting. Yeah. It's like such a, it's, it's such a difficult thing because I think that in the natural birth space, OBGYNs, medicine get such a bad reputation And on an individual level, like every single doctor is only practicing what they were taught. And what they were taught is a reflection of our culture. And so it's not any one doctor's fault. It's not any one practice's fault. It's not even any one career path's fault that we teach and we treat pregnancy the way that we do. They are a symptom, not a cause. Mm-hmm. And if yeah, you want to heal symptoms, then what's fun about that is like, if you believe that OBGYNs and medicine are the problem, then you can't do anything about that. Like you're, if you're not a doctor, then you can't fix it. But if you believe that the culture is the problem, then every single one of us is empowered to change it. Totally. 100%. Um, tell, I know that another thing that you talk about is, um, listening to your body, um, especially during pregnancy and postpartum. So could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So all of my, all of my, um, exercise body practitioner folks will like know that it's almost like just like a random aside that we throw into yoga classes, like, and listen to your body and listen to your body and listen to your body. And like, of course, that's like a wonderful recommendation. Like I would love for everybody taking my class to be listening to their body all the time. But then we don't teach how to listen to your body. We just assume that everyone's going to know how to do that. And like speaking as someone who has been very disembodied, I guarantee you the people in a yoga class do not know how to listen to their body, the vast majority. And plus it's like, what's the difference between stretching and injuring myself? And what's the difference? Like, and then it's also like my body is absolutely brand new Mm -hmm. because I just had a baby. So how do I do that? You know, it's hard. Yeah. And that's why I think like in pregnancy more than ever, like the skill that we're developing is knowledge, but it's also critical thinking and confidence, like a sense of confidence and competence to make your own decisions. Because if you have a new baby, like now you're making decisions for two people. Like I wish that somebody had told me when I was like 20, 25 and like, just being like, no, I don't want to call the landlord. Like, I don't like to talk to people and like, you know, um, advocate for myself. Like, no, I'm not going to, I don't want to be the person who has to call the plumber because plumbers don't respect young women. Like, I wish somebody had been like, girl, this is preparation for the rest of your life. Like calling the plumber is very low stakes compared to advocating for what you want in your birth. So Mm -hmm. like do it now. And same for your kids, right? Like whatever medical interventions you do or don't want for your kids, like if you're going to have to advocate for them, like 
start practicing boo-boo, like better to practice on yourself while you're pregnant than, you know, to then have this kid. And I, I see it in, you know, groups on Facebook all the time of like some parent being like, I wanted to save my placenta, but the hospital said they had to take it. Like, you know, things like that. And then they just were like, is that normal? And it's like, doesn't really matter if it's normal. Like you get to do whatever you want. Like, so, right. so I consider pregnancy to be like the ultimate training ground to figure out how do I hear, how do I listen to myself? How do I hear the, like the story that's under the story and then make a decision that I like for reasons that I like and advocate for it. And that's what we're doing. Like in any moment in a yoga class where you're like, I'm going to decide whether I want to take pigeon pose or a figure four stretch on my back. Like that whole thing is happening. And it's, it takes a lot of courage because Mm -hmm. to do that, because you have to get in touch with yourself and sometimes your body is going to tell you things that are a little scary sometimes. Mm -hmm. So it's takes a lot of courage. Yeah. I mean, I think that's why, like, (laughs) when I was teaching bar classes, like bar was much more popular than yoga because bar allows you to like ego over that internal voice Mm -hmm. the whole time. It's like pushed through. And of course I think that I, I literally, I was just editing videos for my online studio and I like was listening, I was listening to myself say this and I was like, damn, she's right. Um, but, but I was just saying this, I'm like in, in the middle of a strength class, I'm like, my job here is to push you. My job here is to tell you, you can do more to push further, to push harder. My job in every other class is to teach you how to know whether you should push or not. And mm-hmm. then you have to show up to strength training, to your OBGYN appointment, to your, your, meeting with your boss to your request for like to your partner for help. Like you have to show up to all of that and be prepared to advocate for yourself. And so when I say like listening to your ego versus or listening to your body versus listening to your ego, it's like your ego always wants to do the thing that feels good. So that's like eat the Doritos, sit in front of Netflix, uh, which by the way, love Netflix, love Doritos, no hate, but like that's your ego always wants to do the, you know, turn off the alarm clock, go back to sleep. Uh, you know, I don't know like a good example off the top of my head with like, Oh, so like a great one for a baby would be like for moms who are like very, who are having like some postpartum mood and anxiety disorder issues. A lot of the time, like their ego is like, hold the baby, hold the baby, hold the baby. Everything you love is going to be taken away from you and you're going to die. And like what they really need is to learn how to give someone else the baby because that's like literally what their, their body is asking for. Mm -hmm. And your ego is always going to do the thing that gives you like the immediate dopamine and prevents the immediate pain. Mm -hmm. And we have to then like, we have to use our prefrontal cortex, our like big, smart adult brain and be like, is this in my highest interest? Totally. And from what I understand, that prefrontal cortex isn't really done cooking till you're like 24. Yeah, right. No, it's totally not, which is actually why it's really fun to like learn how to parent yourself before you have to parent a toddler. Cause like I look at my kid and I'm like, oh my God, I do the same crap. Like, <laughs> yeah. Cause they are literally just a lizard brain. Like they are just, 
just constantly like responding to their limbic system. They're like doing what feels good in this moment, never looking forward to the next moment, never like worried about the, the ramifications or the repercussions of their actions. Like, and I'm like, Oh my God, I do the same crap. Like, mm-hmm. or sometimes I wish I could yeah, throw right. a tantrum when I don't get my way. Totally. Right? Oh, I mean, I do. No, I, I, <laughs> eh, I throw the occasional tantrum, but like, I, it actually is like really, I walked in, I work with a parenting coach because that is the best thing for my mental health ever. But I told her that I actually found it really nurturing. My daughter does this awesome thing when I pick her up from daycare where she wants to run around the parking lot. My son does the same thing. (laughs) Do this. And like, so I had to like pick her up and she's like kicking and screaming and of course causing a scene. And so then of course my ego is like, oh my God, the the community is going to judge you. And I like have to like force her into our car seat because I'm like, I just don't, I don't have the capacity right now to stand in, I live in South Florida. I'm like to stand in a 90 degree asphalt parking lot and like prevent you from getting hit by a car. Mm-hmm. And then I like got home and, you know, I spent the drive home just like letting her cry and like just talking out loud and being like, this is how I feel. And like, this is, you know, this is all of the stuff. And then I got home and I just said to my husband, like, we both had a lot of really big feelings. And normally my brain would go, she was really difficult to pick up. Or she was really upset. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, we both had a lot of really big feelings. And like, I'm the adult. So like, I had my feelings while like operating a motor vehicle and like <laughs> getting home. But like, we both were having feelings. And like, I think it's really valuable when you're in the middle of the night on like hour two of the baby constantly crying to be like, I am having feelings here. This is my body having feelings. Like, this is uncomfortable. It's painful. Like my limbic system, my lizard brain, whatever you want to call it, like it is in fight or flight hardcore right now. It doesn't know how to do anything but be stressed because dang it, their cries are designed to stress us. Mm-hmm. And my prefrontal cortex can like be the adult who tends to the situation and says like, it's okay to feel that way. Like you don't have to not feel upset you just have to give yourself permission to feel upset and to like not make that mean that you're a bad parent or that you're going to do something to harm your child or anything else. Like you can just be like, hold space to be upset because it sucks. I love that. Like holding space for yourself. Mm-hmm. I think that's where a lot of the power comes. A hundred percent. And like, if you can't hold space for yourself, you can't hold space for a kid. And like, this is something that I work all the time with my, my, um, my mom's on in my postpartum programs where they're like, I just want to never have feelings in front of my child. And I'm like, "Mm." (laughs) I've been, I've been thinking about that a lot lately where I'm like, where did I get this idea that the perfect parents only happy? Because I think it's pretty healthy for my kids who see me get angry and then do like handle it well. Self-regulate. Yeah. And then self-regulate. You have to model it, model it. They don't learn right? Like we all did not, I can't say we all, maybe you had beautiful models for self-regulation, but like we all maybe grew up without a model of how to self-regulate. We didn't, we either saw our parents never get upset or we saw them get very upset and have like no coping skills. And so we Mm -hmm. learned one of those two strategies because no one ever showed that like you can get very upset and then still cope. Mm -hmm. Right. That I can like 
carry my kicking and screaming kid and like be saying in her ear, I'm really upset right now. Like, this is really, I'm very frustrated too. And she can see that like, I'm not hurting her. Like, you know, like there's no harm in having those feelings that like, by the time we get home, like we're both going to have like let off enough steam that like, I can give her a kiss and be like, are you okay? I'm okay. Like we breathe. We're good. Mm Mm-hmm. And we have to model that. You can't just be like, I'm not upset. Like, this is awesome. <laughs> it doesn't help because then they don't see what upset looks like. Mm-hmm. Totally. I think that's really important. Um, so let tell, tell we get, you've kind of mentioned about feminism and how that impacts some of your motherhood journey. Um, so do you want to talk a little bit more about feminism in your work? Yeah. So one of the big ways that this shows up for my clients is that there is something, I just had a really awesome call with one of my coaching clients. And she said, I want to get down into a size eight pair of jeans because it's frivolous because I feel like I've done so much like high stakes, high pressure work, like all of this stuff. And like, I just want to do something that doesn't matter. Like quote unquote, like big capital M matter because, you know, we're in a pandemic and there's an election. And by the time this comes out, I'm assuming there will have been an election um, that like we're, you know, everything is so big and so hard and so important out there that like, she was like, I just want to do this thing because it's not important. And what we got into, like, as we were kind of digging into this is because like, she was like, because if I'm doing something for like, because doing something frivolous for myself is like, inherently selfish in this really wonderful nurturing way that like I'm proving to myself that I can do things just because I want to Mm. and like that like doing that then allows her to be present because she's not burning herself out by only doing big important valuable things that it's like no she's like I don't think I'm going to be a better person if I wear a size eight like I don't think I'm going to be happier if I wear a size eight like I want to do it because it doesn't matter. And I think that that is a big part of it. And then this other part of it that like the, like, and what I started to say there before I got, I just got off the call with that client and I was like, I was so in love with what she was saying that I was like, I have to share that. But the, where I was going with that is like a lot of, because postpartum recovery, like, of course, there's like the medical side of it of like, you have certain like tissues that have to heal and things like that. But a lot of it is vanity. Like a lot of it is superficial. And I think a lot of people really struggle in the tension between being like, I know that this isn't important quotation marks. I know it's not going to make me a better person. And like, I think there's this thing where like, if you're like a woke feminist that you imagine that maybe spending time or energy or money on vanity like actually makes you a worse person or a worse parent and that judging ourselves or judging someone else for looking too good is the same as judging ourselves or someone else for not looking good enough Mm. and all of that judgment is just another way to abandon ourselves And sorry, there's like a lot of ands here. (laughs) I describe it as like when I was getting married, I decided to take my husband's name. And I was like, am I abandoning my principles by taking my husband's name? 
because I want to do this because it's just going to be easier for our family to share a last name. And I disagree with the premise of that. And I don't think it should be that way. And then I read this article that was like, just because you're a feminist doesn't mean you have to take on every feminist battle. You can choose to do what's easy and simple so you have more capacity to do other things. And I think it's the same in our relationship with like vanity and self-care of just being like, sometimes it's just easier to be, unfortunately, like it's really effed up that it's easier to be a size eight than a size 14. Like it's just easier to function in the world that way. And if that gives you the capacity to do more valuable work, to change the system, then do it. Thank you for that perspective. I think that's very important. Yeah. And of course, like I'm totally down for people to disagree with me. Like if you're like, no, you don't get to be a feminist if you wear lipstick, then like, fine. Like you're more than welcome to your opinion. But like, I like the version of feminism that includes more people that says like, if you're, if you're 5% feminist, you count. Like I'll take you, you get to join the ranks. I'm also like, is it feminism if they have to be your flavor of feminism? Yeah, right. 100%. Isn't that kind of the, like, kind of like, like, why can't a person just be whoever they want? And isn't that feminism? You know? Yeah, right, <laughs> like, right. Like, if feminism is a belief system, which means that, like, how someone appears or how they show up or how they identify has no bearing on what they believe, right? It's like when, when I'm getting in an argument with my husband and he's like, you're in such a bad mood. And I'm like, you don't get to say if I'm in a bad mood. Like I'm the one who's in a mood. Like you don't know what my mood is. And it's like the same with like our beliefs. It's like, okay, so, so yeah, like I am in a very privileged, like I have like the easiest version of being a woman. Like I'm in a white, cis, straight, thin body. And that makes stuff a lot easier for me. And that's okay. Like that doesn't make me a bad person. And I can still do really important work with all of that privilege to provide more privilege to people who don't have it. Awesome. Thank you. Um, Well, as we're tying things up, is there anything else that you would like to add? Oh my goodness. I feel like we covered all the things. (laughs) Yeah, I feel like we did too. <laughs> yeah, I'm like we did it we did it all. I mean, we didn't cover like my childhood, but I think we can leave that one out for this episode. Awesome. Well, do you want to let our listeners know how they can get a hold of you? Sure. So the best places to find me are I am Kelly Bryant Wellness on all the things. So that's my Instagram handle, facebook.com slash Kelly Bryant Wellness and Kelly Bryant Wellness.com. Um, I do work with people prenatally and postpartum as well as all stages postpartum, including even like up to and through menopause. I work with people one-on-one in groups. I have tons of free resources. Specifically, if you like find me on social media, DM me and like tell me your questions and I'll point you toward all the awesome free resources that I have. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time and for sharing your story with us and your thoughts. Absolutely. Thank you for for such an intriguing interview with lots of really awesome things to think about. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you. Until next time, this has been the Here and Now Motherhood Podcast. 